we have had in the last 200 years three changes that have changed the world phenomenally forever. We're in the midst of the third one right now. So that's the baseline for what I can reasonably expect to see happening over the next decades or even a century. And it is going to be different going forward. Once more unto the breach, dear friend. Else fill up the wall with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Together, we are bald. It, separately, too. We're bald as well. But yeah, we yeah. just let you know that we are bald together and bearded. Uh, the first and most important of our disclosures is out of the way. Two bald bearded people are talking to you. If that is a trigger for you, you should likely switch the station. Uh, we're also going to talk a lot of eco babble. By eco, we mean green. And by green, we don't mean um, growing things unless it's the money supply. Green money. We're economists. We're not going to talk about the environment unless it affects uh, the economy, which is all the time. <laughs> you see what I did there with the, yeah. So that is a very normal thing for economists to do is to predict all possible outcomes and claim credit when one of them is occurring. Uh, we are going to give you that as a disclosure to begin with as well, because uh, we've never failed to predict the things that we have said all possible outcomes on. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the personal wealth coach, which is also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. That's a firm that manages wealth and portfolios and all that good stuff at a fiduciary level. Well, we're the same people that are at those, that firm, and this radio program's got the same name. Just because the firm is registered to give investment advice at the fiduciary level doesn't mean we can do that on the radio. It actually means we can't do it on the radio because the radio is in no way private. And if you're listening to this, someone else might be too. And we're giving you specific advice and somebody else might know about it. That's not so cool. Okay. The other thing is that... Um, just because the firm is registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC somehow gives us any form of favoritism, think that we have golden hair because we don't, we're bald, um, or any of the other uh, euphemisms that claim some kind of affiliation or uh, fatherly, fatherly figure in the SEC. The SEC doesn't do that. Uh, they are there to say, yes, you registered with me. But it's more of a, that means that we can come and slap you rather than we like you in any way. Um, not that they would actually slap us. That, that's not in the regulations anyway. It's only metaphorically. A metaphorical slapping, yes. Right. Which, which right. can be just as painful. It's just not physical. Uh, okay, so SEC didn't give us any ups or downs in, uh, let's see, not more fiduciary. We can't do that on the air. Um, you've got one that's really good. Can you say it as fast and monotone as you possibly can just to see? I know it's hard for me to do that. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said sources. We're going to record that 
and turn the volume down yeah, I, two, uh, two, it, two levels and speed it up like four times. Uh, I said sources instead of information. Well, right. Yes, yeah. Okay. That's After fine. we do it. We'll, so, we'll do yeah. it again. Uh, and you added to the disclosure that I didn't finish uh, that just because we're not giving investment advice. So what what are we doing? Well, it's educational. We're we're trying to teach you. Um, uh, we're going to get make you just as ignorant as we are. And hopefully no, that's no, 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 no. We can't uh, do that. It takes years. Yes. It takes many, many years of expertise to realize the depth of your ignorance. Yes. My is- ignorance grows exponentially while my knowledge only grows arithmetically as a result i shall end my life by drowning in a sea of ignorance yes so what we are proclaiming to do for you is to exponentially increase your ignorance just like us yes that's what any education does and your entropy while you're at it yes let's let's entropy uh, there's a great example of that. Anytime you pull out Christmas lights that you very carefully untangled the year before, entropy has affected your attic, and now it is tangled. Chaos ensues. This is how right. we look at the markets as well. Because so much focus is on the Fed right now, I want to give a piece of history rather than um, delve into the intricacies of economics. So let's, let's stop for a second and say the Federal Reserve Board, what are we talking about here? We've got the number two there going over to be the advisor to the president on the Council of Economic, the head of the Council of Economic Advisors to the president being replaced by someone. Um, and what does it even mean? Well, the Federal Reserve is a bank regulator. That's what they do. They regulate banks. They tell banks, hey, you guys need to have money when people deposit it with you. You need to make sure that you give it back to them when they want it. That's essentially their job. And it's an organization that was mandated by the U.S. government, but it's not a U.S. government organization. The head of the Federal Reserve is, and several of the other board members of the, the Board of Governors, uh, the voting board are nominated by the president and approved by the Senate to get there. But the rest of them come as presidents of the Federal Reserve Banks. These are for-profit institutions, and their job is to make sure that the banks don't fail. So how far does this go back? Well, in the history of the world, there have been central banks for a long, long time. Uh, It's based on, believe it or not, on the concept that Sir Isaac Newton put together for the United Kingdom. Uh, if, if he were around in the 20th century, he would have had Nobel Prizes in physics, economics, medicine. You would have just kept going down the list. So this guy was pretty Im- impressive. And Isaac Newton set up the model for what we call a central bank today, to, to loan money to the banks and to make sure that the banks have enough money on hand. So we had one of those in the United States for a while, and Andrew Jackson abolished it, and and then we didn't have one for a good long period. So how long has the Federal Reserve existed? 1913. That's when it started. Mm. Uh, the, 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 the first chair of the Federal Reserve was December 23rd, 1913. The reason is because we had a near financial collapse in 1907. And it took a private financier that you'll recognize the name of because his company that he founded still exists. The original J.P. Morgan stepped in and made bailout loans to all the banks. Now, if it had been the government, we would call it bailouts. But because J.P. Morgan did it, it wasn't called a bailout. He rescued the banks, but they paid him a lot of profitable, 
profitable loan payments on that. He made a lot of money by saving the banks. The Federal Reserve does too, and their job is to make sure that banks follow good rules. They don't loan out more money than they have. Basically, the rules that we're trying to get the crypto companies to follow, that sort of stuff. Like, just stop loaning out more than the money that you have. You can't do that. That doesn't make sense. When you don't pay back the people, it just doesn't work. So the history of the Federal Reserve, it started with a bunch of lawyers as the chair. Uh, there's only been 16 chairs of the Federal Reserve. Uh, they're appointed and it's supposed to be apolitical. But the first series of chairs of the Federal Reserve were former politicians and attorneys. And you go through and then eventually we start in, in the 1930s. We start saying, hey, we need to get somebody that actually understands business in there instead of politicians and attorneys. So then we had a long stream of just business people, long stream, four or five of them. We had four or five attorneys and then four or five business people. And then the first economist came to the board in 1934. Now, that's an interesting year because 1934 is when you start to see the recovery periods in the Great uh, Depression. You start, that was the bottom. So this, this economist comes in and takes over, and he served for 13 years. He was there at, through World War II and was at the helm when price controls were being instituted for what people could charge you on almost all goods, how much a loaf of bread co cost was set by the government. Because we were in war footing, we needed that stuff for the troops. So this is a very, very different time period than what we're looking at today. Then we went back to business people and we got burned on that one. And I'm making a pun there. We got burned on that one because uh, Chairman Burns, who was an economist, stepped in and did a really, really good job for a while in the 1970s. And by a really, really good job, not very Good. He didn't really do a good job. If anybody remembers the 1970s, it was, uh, yes, he's uh, old Baldy in there is raising his head and his hand saying, hey, yes, um, I remember this. We had some bad inflation during that time period. And then we had another business person come in and that was Miller. And Miller exacerbated the problem. He came in under Jimmy Carter and basically did all of the things backwards. He came in as a business person after an economist that hadn't, hadn't been doing it well, but hadn't really thoroughly bungled it either. And he did all the wrong things and was part of the reason why Jimmy Carter didn't stay in office. Uh, Paul Volcker was then nominated by Jimmy Carter to the Federal Reserve Chair, and he was and is an economist. Uh, well, he died in 2019. So he was an economist. I missed that somehow. Followed by Greenspan and Bernanke and Yellen and Powell. All of these are high-level academic, non-political economists. I know that's weird. We're going through the administrations of Carter, Reagan, the first Bush, Clinton, the second Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden, and they're non-politically non motivated economists. That's really amazing and strange because the Federal Reserve is a, it's supposed to run apolitically. That's what the original writing write-up of it was. But then as soon as they wrote it up, they appointed politicians to lead it. So where when people talk about the Federal Reserve as this 
you know, it's a conglomeration and they're trying to do whatever, they, they whisper things in the corners and so on. It's really hard for me to believe that because if you look at the, the people that were the head of it and the people that were nominated by each of these presidents to sit on the board, it's strangely non-political, strangely so. Where the, where Jimmy Carter nominated Paul, Vol Paul Volcker, but then so did Ronald Reagan. And that Reagan, Bush, Clinton, and the other Bush kept Greenspan. And that Bush and Obama had Bernanke. Obama had Yellen. Trump and Biden had Powell. So th this is something I'm, I'm trying. This is a, a board and a position that's arguably financially the most important position on the planet. And most people don't know who sits on the board or what their backgrounds are. So I, I just wanted to step in and say that's, that's what's going on. There's only ever been 16 chairs and it's worth checking them out. Most people know all the, know the, at least the presidents during their lifetime. This is a big one. Um, and now to Inquisitor John, uh, which kind of fits into this, what I was talking historical stuff. His question is, the subject line is, this time it's different. What societal economic changes that have occurred since or made by COVID does, do we think will be permanent going forward? Wow, that is a fantastic question. When future historians look back at this time and future economists look back at this time, and you're welcome to join in on this conversation too, Elder Baldy Jeff, um, I, I think what they're going to see is that we were on a slowly speeding up course to automate and roboticize that got hit into warp speed from this. That we went from a slow transition like we did with the phone operators to the machine that you now have when you hit zero on your phone. If you still have a phone that you can hit zero on. What happened to all the people in the phone operator jobs? Well, they aren't there anymore. How many of them were just laid out, laid off in a mass firing? Well, almost none. What happened? Well, it transitioned. People were moved to other positions inside companies and they, they still had their jobs all the way through because it was a slow transition. When we were looking at truck drivers and we were looking at ship captains and train engineers, we've had a very slow progression towards some type of automation. When it comes to trains and ships, the progression has accelerated at a rate that just is it, it's it's such a strange phenomena in the in the numbers. The number of people required to be on a ship to transport a much larger amount of goods than have ever been shipped back and forth before has gone from hundreds of people on that ship to two or three, and in some cases one to 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 bring a ship which is mostly automated from one side of the Pacific to the other. And there's a bunch of ships that are being created now that don't have people on them. When we look at what's happening in the farming world, where at the beginning of the 20th century, 123 years ago, 80% of the population, the working population of the United States was involved in agriculture. The beginning of the 21st century, it was 2%. It is now 0.2%. 
2% of our population. Well, what's happened there? It's the automation of what we, we do. The, the combines have become enormous machines where if, if, you know, there's books that I, storybooks that I read to uh, my children when we go to get ready for bed at night. And Richard Scarry was a classic when I was growing up. And so it's this picture book and I'm reading through it and it's written in the 1960s and all the tractors are little red tractors and the combine machines are tiny little combines that can be pulled on those little red tractors because it's looking back in the 1940s and 50s. Since then, those tractors are now about eight times that size and the things that they pull are sometimes hundreds of, si of times the size of the things that were pulled uh, behind those little tractors. And those tractors had generally, you generally had eight or nine on a, of them on a relatively medium-sized farm. Now you have one of those massive machines that services either a conglomerate corporate farm that stretches square miles, or you have a service that does it for small farms. And they just go out and, and do the whole, the, the entire farm in one day and it's done. We're seeing that progression in agriculture. That's taken place over the last 20 years toward more and more automation. And the 40 years before that, it was just larger and larger equipment. So fewer and few, fewer people needed, but Still, you needed people until eventually you get to the point where you just need one farmer to operate dozens of massive combines. What happened with COVID to, is that sort of thing accelerated into manufacturing. It's the combination of the information revolution and the industrial revolution when they're combining. The information revolution was seriously focused on services, on better ways of servicing people. It eventually became a big part of logistics and transporting packages from one place to another. But it was all very people-centric. To transport those packages, you needed somebody to drive the truck and somebody to pull the, the package off and put it in the right box. And then th that person had to then move it to another box and, and so on. It's, it's, it's the old postage system system that goes back as far back as you want to go. We're automating that to the point where there may not be a driver for that truck. There may not be someone loading or unloading those packages. And of course, right now, that's people. It, it's not possible to do that completely in an automated way. But our ability to automate that went from, won't it be nice, to we've almost got most of this stuff solved during the pandemic. And that hit because the pandemic is such a big tsunami in our economic system, it completely redesigned supply chains and replaced whole boards at corporations and the entire strategy of how we get a, a product from manufacturing to the store to you. It's all being redesigned. Every part of it's being redesigned. It's echoes of the past, you know, Sears Roebuck, you could order and it would be delivered. It was shipped on an, on a train and showed up at a station and then you had to go and pick it up to today. You click a button and something arrives either the next day or the same day, depending on where you live. The information logistical stuff is maturing. We can thank McLean, uh, Drayton McLean for that, uh, the beginning of the just in time stuff. But we have really, really worked that information revolution 
in logistics and in delivery, really, really to the to the core. We're pretty sure we got that handled. Now we're replacing the people in it. And that was a really long-winded answer to say that may be the biggest thing that we'll look back on and say the the acceleration toward automation was just off the charts. What would you say? I would say this is not the first time this has happened. Yeah, happened I agree. hundred years ago. I agree. And it kind of... A hundred years ago, we had a major shift, very much like the one we're seeing today. And about 200 years ago, we had a major shift, very much like the one we're seeing today. And those are the baselines, at least I look at, for what's going on in the economy and why it seems different. Obviously, it seems different because there just aren't any people around who were adults a hundred years ago who were studying economics, who were paying attention to the fact that the introduction of the internal combustion engine into everything radically changed the economy permanently. And before that, 100 years earlier, the introduction of the portable steam engine, I say portable uh, steam engines could be built anywhere, changed the economy radically. Um, those two elements, and I say portable because the railroads had steam engines. And when, when we had widespread ability to travel and haul large quantities of goods from one place to another and large quantities of people from one place to another, it radically changed politics, the economy, everything to do with civilization permanently. And we haven't seen a lot of those things occurring. The, the last, matter of fact, you want to go back to the first one I can clearly identify. Well, actually, there's yeah, the last one I can clearly identify is the Romans building roads. Yeah. Had a similar effect by building roads and standardizing axle lengths and wheel sizes and horses and things like that. They dramatically changed the world forever. And But that was a one-time shock. There was another event that occurred with the advent of the plow and the longsword. Uh, I won't go into the details on that. And that changed the world forever. But we have had, in the last 200 years, three changes that have changed the world phenomenally forever. We're in the midst of the third one right now. So that's the baseline for what I can reasonably expect to see happening over the next decades or even a century. And it is going to be different going forward in answers to John's question. And one of the things that I need to point out the Federal Reserve's raising interest rates. And I've heard a lot of people say, why are they doing that? There wasn't a bubble. We didn't need this. We, and I point at inflation numbers and the fact that things were going up in value. And well, then what's the result of all this? They haven't really fixed anything is the other response. And I answer that with this headline. U.S. home sales fell for the twelfth straight month. Um, what is, what existing, is that? existing? Exi well, no, that's U.S. home sales fell for okay. twelve state. That's all existing and new homes. Everything across the board has fallen for twelve months in a row. What does that mean? Well, we did have some bubbles, no doubt about it. Um, we had a bubble in used cars, and we had a bubble in houses. What the Federal Reserve is doing is trying not to pop the bubble but to slowly deflate it. So let me give you some existing home sale numbers. So this is not new homes. This is existing, but this is the majority of the home market. Existing homes are by far the, the largest part of the market. Um, existing home sales by price from one year ago, January to January. Okay. If 
if we're talking about houses across the United States that are more valuable than a million dollars, we've had a 42% decline in the number of houses being sold per month. That's big. Very, 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 very big. Yes. At the same time, existing home prices from a year ago, January, are up 1.3%. There's no segment of that market, by the way. No, no area where home sales didn't fall drastically. And the lowest that any area fell in, price, in sales, not in prices, just the number that were sold, are the, the houses between zero and $100,000, and they only fell in the number of sold by 25%. The, the highest was the million dollar plus, but the, the, everything fell by more than 25%. And all of the sectors except for that below 100,000 fell by more than 30%. So what's happening there? Well, interest rates are up. That means mortgages are more expensive and most people buy with a mortgage, not with cash. So why is it that the house prices are still up 1.3% from a year ago when the sales have dropped at the minimum 25%? The answer to that is people don't necessarily have to sell their house today. People aren't saying, I'm going to cut the value of my house by 50% to sell it. If you have a house on the market, you're very reluctant to take less than what you think it's worth right now, which has caused house prices not to plummet in the middle of this. There's still not enough houses to go around. Most people don't have nine um, houses. They generally have one house. Um, there, there's a, there has been a boom in short-term rental houses in certain areas where it's oversaturated, and at some point that's going to come off of the prices. But because there's still a lot of money sitting out there, we were talking about the savings rate. The, the savings rate is dropping, but the amount of money people still have in the bank is really, really high. It's hard for people to look at their bank account and not be lacking cash. They still got enough in there and say, I've got to sell my house. I'm going to drop it by a bunch. So what this looks like to me is home prices are up 1.3%. Last year in January, they were up more than 20% from the year before. This looks like we're going back to moderation. This looks like a normal increase that's necessary. And this, this is, we're bringing some normality back here. And when we look at the used car market, you're starting to have new cars coming out again. I mean, not starting to, but they're, they're producing again. We've got cars that you can buy at the dealership and their inventories are rising because people are manufacturing again. And that means used car prices are falling. And if you thought, I'm just going to hang on to my beat up old Jeep and sell it next year for double its value, well, you made a bad decision. Now, I don't know anybody that did that that didn't have a beer in their hand when they were I'm going to sell it for double next year because everybody's like, I'm going to sell it for what it's this crazy amount now. And we are out of time. Yes, we are. Uh, If you would like to talk to us off the air, the personal wealth coach actually gives individualized fiduciary investment advice and portfolio management for people of relatively high net worth. Um, You can talk to us off the air. We have voicemail waiting Uh, during the weekend or real live people during the week locally at 254-947-1111. 
And should you still have a landline, you can reach that line toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can see our made-for-radio faces. You can read about who we are and what we do and all that stuff. You can read our newsletters going back lots of years. You can sign up for the newsletter. You can listen to our radio programs going back. You can find our podcasts anywhere you find them. There's a contact form on there. You can talk to us that way. Or you can email us directly. And we read those things at Jeff and Jake at tpwc.com. Till next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.